Today on The Book Club, we will weep for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy. But first, Dallas Baptist University is a comprehensive, Christ-centered, nationally ranked university with a mission to produce the next generation of servant leaders. DBU graduates are men and women of a deep faith who strive to reflect the values of genuine patriotism. They can be found leading in the classrooms, in the courtrooms, in the boardrooms, and beyond, all throughout our country and around the world. To learn more about the value of a DBU education and how you or your student may be eligible to receive a $1,000 scholarship, visit PragerU.com DBU. That way, you or your child can be educated, and if they're ever marooned on a desert island, will not descend into anarchy and savagery and kill each other. Here to help me describe that particular phenomenon uh, is my friend Lauren Chen as we go through William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Lauren, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this book. I had not read this book since I was the age of the kids in this book. I was probably in seventh grade the last time I read it. And it's a very, very good book. Can you, in 60 seconds or so, just summarize what goes on? Sure, happy to. So, Lord of the Flies tells the story of a group of British schoolboys who, in the midst of a nuclear war, end up stranded on a deserted island. And the boys quickly elect this one character, Ralph, to be their leader. And he's very much symbolic of civilization, rules, and order. He wants to establish uh, day-to-day goings-on on the island and make sure that they can actually get rescued. Things quickly go south, mainly due to the fact that this other boy, Jack, would rather focus on the more primal elements of living on this island. So he's leading a group of what he calls the hunters, who are the other choir boys. And quickly, these two different factions, who kind of represent the civilized versus uncivilized versions of ourselves, they come to deadly blows. And eventually, after death, destruction, and almost burning down the island, this group is only ended up— they. They're eventually rescued by the, uh, the military who happens upon them. Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned in the beginning something that a, a lot of people forget about when they go over this book, which is the entire context for it. You've got the airplane flying in with these kids. Something goes wrong in the airplane. The plane crashes. The kids end up on the island. There's no grown-ups. And they, they say at the beginning, if only there were grown-ups, if only there were adults, then we could take care of ourselves. But as you point out, the only reason the kids were on the airplane in the first place is there's a nuclear war going on. The, the grown-ups blew themselves up too. I don't. They probably wouldn't have done any better than the kids. Right, and that's what really interests me about this book because I remember when I was first reading it, I was probably 12 or 13 or something. It was very much painted as, uh, you know, on a des- deserted island, we are uncivilized. That's the primal nature of the man versus what we are in society. But I think, like you, that Golding actually had a very different interpretation. And don't forget, he is someone who served during World War II and was also a teacher, which I think exposed him to a lot of darkness of humanity. Uh, You know, I've been around school kids. We were just talking about that. Um, So not only uh, does this whole book only happen because of a nuclear war that was started, like you said, by adults, but even within the book, we see that the characters who are meant to represent the best of humanity, civilization, as well as intellectualism, uh, they ultimately, in their own ways, end up falling uh, um, just like people like Jack, who are from the get-go more interested in abandoning um, the more civilized aspects of themselves. Anybody who has ever been or met 
a 12 or 13-year-old boy, in particular the boys, the girls are a treat too, but especially these boys, and it's all boys on the island, knows that they are the worst people on earth. 12 and 13-year-olds are the worst people on earth. They have lost their childhood innocence. They have not yet been educated to maybe hopefully try to deal with themselves responsibly. They're mean, they're petty, they're vicious, and according to William Golding, they're killers. Yes, and I think it's really interesting that he comes from the position of a teacher that is writing about this because I think him more than anybody would understand that even though we might like to see uh, the dividing line as being civilization versus not being civilized, I think you'll find that even within the realms of a, a society that has rules and laws, there still is the opportunity. And in fact, sometimes even the worst atrocities are only made possible by the fact that we have almost built ourselves up. Nuclear war, like one that started off this novel, is a great example of that. Well, th- this is the key because at the very end, when we're skipping a little bit, obviously we'll go back, but at the very end, this ship shows up and they actually, the boys do get saved. Right. And the the English captain of the ship says, so what's going on? What have you boys been doing? You've been uh, just uh, playing pretend and making war? And and the the boys say, yes. He doesn't realize (laughs) we've literally been making war. And he says, oh, it's like the Coral Island. And I looked up. I had never heard of the Coral Island. I had never read the Coral Island. So I looked it up. The Coral Island is this book by R.M. Ballantyne. And it's a book that was regularly assigned in British elementary schools and in American high school, shows you the, the comparative <laughs> yeah, value of the, yes. Yeah. And uh, the, the Coral Island was a book about these three English boys, Western Christian boys, who go to a Polynesian island, and the island is full of these uncivilized savage tribes that kill each other and eat each other and do all sorts of uncivilized terrible things. And then the boys bring civilization to them, and the tribes are civilized, and this is a happy ending. And this book that Golding wrote, is in a way the in inverse of that book. Right. The, the, the first book, The Coral Island, was written in the 19th century. We're talking about the height of the British Empire, the Victorian age. You, you've got a Western civilization that's really proud of itself, very confident in what it believes. Th- this book, The Lord of the Flies, was written just after the Second World War. In fact, a, a review of it in The Guardian when it came out said the book could not have been written before the horrors of Nazi Europe, the horrors of the Second World War, that while the the Coral Island shows evil as something that is external to us that we have to deal with, what, what Golding says in Lord of the Flies is that no, no, the evil lies within. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because comparing those two types of works, these are still this is still a discussion that people are struggling with. Is man inherently good or is man inherently bad? And I think, you know, people have criticized Golding for being uh, too pessimistic. And I've even heard uh, people try to assert that he's racist and trying to portray the, the descendant of savagery through the use of things like face painting and hunting and spears, almost trying to draw a parallel. But see, these cultures that still do that, they're worse than us. But it's like, no, no, he's saying any negatives that are associated with that, that's just inherent to who we are as people. And I'm, you know, I enjoy Hobbes. I'm a Calvinist. Personally, I am very much in agreement with Golding. And even if we look at what we've just been through the past two years, uh, you know, this we haven't really seen a descent into anarchy or a lack of rule of law, but I still think the inherent, uh, I guess, desire to abandon civility 
because of our fear, that is still very much with us. And I think we just saw that play out with COVID. Sure. Well, you and, and you did see a lot of lawlessness over the last two That's years. That's true, yeah. You, you see it at the beginning of the book. You've got the leader, Ralph, who you mentioned, and he's got this sort of friend. It's a kid that he's, the kid's fat and he's got asthma and he can't see without his glasses. And his name is Piggy. And he says, please, Ralph, whatever you do, don't tell the other kids what they used to call. They used, it's right on the back of the book. They say, they used to call me Piggy. And what does Ralph do? Mean little 12-year-old punk. He, he tells all the rest of the kids that he was called Piggy. And they all make fun of Piggy. But Piggy is really smart. Piggy says, this is a scientific world. Don't believe in ghosts. Don't believe in monsters. Believe in reason. Believe in the rule of law. He finds a conch shell, you know, that you blow through on right. the beach. He says, this will be the symbol of leadership. Ralph, you will be the leader. And for a while, not for very long, but for a little while, the kids are behaving and they're building huts and they're exploring and they're, they're building the most important thing to them, which is the fire, the smoke signal, so that they can be discovered by a passing ship. But very quickly, everything breaks down and they let the fire go out. Right. And I think it's important to know that the reason why the fire goes out, it's not just because they forgot or they were lazy. It's because they were actively pursuing, I think it's hunting, right? That other more primal instinct, which, I mean, obviously, if you want to survive, you need to eat. But in this book, it's very much an, an allegory for that darker aspect of ourselves because of the way the boys engage in it. It's very, it's it's violent. And you can see that there are several times throughout the book where they almost act out these pig hunts as, as, you know, murders of other people, which they do end up doing to this one boy, Simon. Uh, ironically, while he's trying to reason with them that there's no monster on the island, uh, they, in their bloodlust, end up killing someone who is trying to present them with reason and logic. You, you bring up Simon. I think he's my favorite character in the whole book. So we've already got, for those who are tracking the characters, we've got Ralph. He's the leader. The, the leader. He's elected chief. Then you've got Jack. He's the hunter mm -hmm. who makes himself the rival chief. You've got poor little Piggy who's just trying to be protected and, and call people back to reason. And you've got Simon who's in a way the prophet mm -hmm. or the priest of the island. Uh, after the hunters go and they kill this hog, they're, they're so afraid of the ghosts, the, the beast, the evil that lurks, they believe, outside of themselves on the island whenever the darkness comes, that they leave a, a sacrifice, literally a, an animal sacrifice, which is the head of the pig. Right, they the lord of the flies. And the lord of the, because all the flies come to the head right. of the pig on the, on the spike. And so Simon, this strange kid, kind of the prophet or the priest of the island, he goes up and he has a conversation with this pig sacrifice idol. And the pig sacrifice idol says, the evil, it's, it's in you all. You can't run away from me. The darkness of man's heart is, is just where it is. It's just in man's heart. And it, you mention that the hunters and the whole, all of the kids eventually would not merely go on the hunt, but they would act out the hunt. They would perform a ritual. It seems a lot like a religious ritual to, to pretend one kid is a pig and one mm -hmm. kid, kid is the hunter. And it, it seems like any kind of savage tribal dance. And as poor little Simon is wandering out of the woods— they treat him as the sacrificial victim. And right. They all pounce and kill him. And I think what's so frustrating about that scene is that not only is Simon almost kind of just minding his own business, but the reason why he is descending from, I think, uh, the area that he was in where he had seen this pig head as well is that 
during one of the nights, there is a, a paratrooper, someone who, uh, a soldier that ends up parachuting down to the island who dies. Uh, some of the children who are on the island see that and they interpret that from afar to be the beast. And this sort of, yeah, it just, it spurs on all the irrational fears that they're having. Simon gets a closer look and he sees it for what it really is. Oh, this isn't a monster that's going to get us. Uh, It is a dead body, which is horrifying enough as it is, but no reason for us to be uh, whipping ourselves into this frenzy. As he is trying to go and present this message of rationality and calmness, that is when ultimately he is attacked by his peers. And it's not just the hunters like Jack, but it's also people like Ralph and Piggy who end up taking part in this murder, even though after the fact they will try to rationalize it and distance themselves from it. That was such a moving scene because I think it really spoke to the fact that even the most civilized of us, the most rational of us, like Piggy, like, uh, like Ralph, Ultimately, we can still fall prey to these same primal urges. We inevitably do. It reminded me of the scapegoat. You know, the idea of the scapegoat goes back. It's in the Bible. It's in other ancient myths. This idea that, well, I guess it was explained recently, relatively recently, by a a sociologist named René Girard. And he had this idea of mimetic desire. And it's a very fancy term, but basically it means that we our desires are formed through imitation, that man is primarily an imitative being and a ritualistic being. And so the reason that I want this coffee is not because of the coffee. It's because you want the coffee. And I see you want the coffee, and now I say, that coffee's worth something. I want that coffee. It really plays out, speaking of young boys, it really plays out when two guys are fighting over a girl. Right. Maybe at a certain point, neither of the guys even really cared about the girl, but they see the other guy wants the girl. And so now I want her all the more, and now you want her all the more. And now... Our rivalry has become so intense that you got to punch that other guy in the face. And so Girard's idea of mimetic rivalry is that this is intrinsic to human societies. We, it, it inevitably, it leads to a war of all against all. And the only way to let it out is with a sacrificial victim. The only way to let it out, the ancient Israelites, what would they do? They would sacrifice one kid, goat, not a kid like the Lord of the Flies, but yeah. a goat. They would sacrifice one, and then they would cast all of their sins onto the other one and send the goat out into the wilderness. You need that sacrificial victim. And Gerard sees this play out most fully in Christ, who is the sacrificial lamb. He's the embodiment of that. But that all culture has this need. And that's what they do to poor little Simon. They have to cast their, their mimetic rivalry onto this poor kid, even as he's trying to give them important information. It doesn't matter. And it and it's not even just the bad kids. It's the good kids, too. It's Ralph. It's even Little Piggy. Right. And I think something that's really interesting is that at the end of all of this, uh, you know, these boys have gone through so much at the beginning of this video. You've mentioned the loss of innocence. When they finally are rescued, what do they do? They ultimately fall to their knees and they start crying every single one of them. Um, and I think it, it does go to show that even though at the time, like this is what they felt that they must do, uh, ultimately trying to satisfy those primal urges, uh, the the war of all against all, it was not enough to actually, um, you know, I guess help them cope with the things that they have had seen, the things that they had done, and that was only really possible when they were being removed from the situation. And I think that's also a commentary by Golding is that even though that may be part of us, that inner desire for darkness, for conflict and savagery, it does not lead us to a good place. Well, and, you know, we've talked about this poor kid Simon getting killed. We haven't talked about the most famous death in the book, which is 
poor Piggy. Yes. They go because they need Piggy because Piggy's glasses are the way that they start the fire. The sunlight goes through the lens, and it's the only way that they can start fire. And they're always picking on Piggy, and finally they go and throw a rock and kill Piggy. Poor Piggy. There's another kid who dies early on in the book. He's a kid with a mark on his face, and he just dies. He just, they didn't take care of him, and he just died. So you've got now three kids have died. How do they get discovered in the end? It's because they light the whole damn island on fire. Right. Because Jack and the hunters in that tribe, they're hunting down the new scapegoat, this new one guy, Ralph. They're chasing him down the whole, the whole place has been lit ablaze. Finally, a ship finds them. One of my favorite passages in the book is one that's not actually usually mentioned. And it's when uh, Ralph is talking to Piggy and they're asking about the fear of the dark, the fear of the ghosts, the fear of the beast. And Ralph says, the trouble is, are there ghosts, Piggy, or beasts? Piggy says, of course there aren't. Why not? Because things wouldn't make sense. Houses and streets and TV, they wouldn't work. The dancing, chanting boys had worked themselves away till their sound was nothing but a wordless rhythm. And then Ralph asks the pressing question. But suppose they don't make sense. Not here, on this island. Supposing things are watching us and waiting. All this liberal modernity that we're living in, where we've got, we've got five fancy coffee machines within a stone's throw. We've got nice cars and heating. And food is everywhere and everyone's really polite. Suppose that's fragile. Suppose that's not just permanent. Suppose there's something really dark crouching within each of us. And the moment you take just a little bit of that veneer of civilization away, things can get really dark. I mean, I personally think that you've just described reality. And I know that there are people who will push back, those who believe that no, no man is inherently good. And, uh, you know, being in the civilization, even if we are perhaps more prone to rougher aspects when we are alone, just being accountable to each other, that will make us good. I still disagree with that, but you you mentioned Piggy's glasses, and those are interesting, I think, because not only, uh, I guess, do they represent a way for a conflict to arise within the book, but I think they also represent um, man's conflict with nature itself. So we have man's conflict with man and our our inner demons, but also with nature itself uh, being almost in some ways fighting against our urge to civilize. You mentioned the fire. It's only through destroying nature that they are eventually saved. And it's the same thing with Piggy as a whole in addition to his glasses. He is someone who represents man's rationality. He is overweight. He has asthma. He is incapable pretty much of seeing without these glasses. Uh, And these glasses are the only things that are really enabling these boys to survive long-term and to uh, continue to live on. So I'm not saying that Golding was perhaps anti-environmentalist, but I do think it's interesting that uh, that tension, that friction is also there. And, and I am not a Calvinist, so I, I maybe don't have quite as dark a view of human <laughs> nature as you do. But, you know, certainly one could not read this book or look around reality and say man is at all times just a jolly, happy, wonderfully beneficent soul. That perhaps uh, man is not entirely and completely depraved, but man is made in the, this would be my take at least, Man is made in the image of God. We have some good desires, but we're so fallen. You know, we mm-hmm. get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. There's original sin. The, the imagination of man's heart is evil from the beginning, as you see in the Bible, that our, our good desires 
can go really, really wrong. And, and you still see uh, the, the way that they know how they're supposed to behave is within them. Even these little boys on the island, they know they're supposed to be good, but they just don't do it. Even the best ones among them right. do not do it. And that's what's kind of the most interesting part for me of the, the book as you're starting to read it is that you can see slowly the boys start to realize that, okay, we know right from wrong and what we're supposed to do, but who's still here to keep us accountable? There's this one character, I believe his name is Roger, who's almost the sociopath, yeah. right? The one the who's- ki- Total killer. Total killer. And, uh, you know, it kind of starts off this one scene where he's, I think, throwing rocks at this other kid. And, you know, he's not he's not murdering or really hurting him seriously, but you can tell that urge is there. And even just reading that passage, ultimately, you know that, all right, we know what he wants to do. He's not doing it, but he's not doing it not because of uh, any inherent good in him, but because he knows there are consequences, but those consequences no longer apply to this situation. And um, that's kind of a, a terrifying realization that I think if if this were to happen in real life would ultimately unfold. And we see that in emergency situations, it's not really rioting, looting necessarily happening, uh, you know, one second after the flood. Yeah. There, There's that security that people feel and it, things take a while to gradually break down. We've seen it, you mentioned the last two years with COVID, but right. We've seen it in the last two years with the, B- the BLM riots. Yes, <laughs> yes, the summer of love that was really a summer of hate. That the moment that you spread the idea that this, the system of justice isn't really going to work, if you commit crimes, you're not really going to be held to account. The minute the grown-ups mm-hmm. leave in our allegedly civilized society, you get looting and rioting and burning and murder coast to coast. As we film this right now, we are living through one of the greatest crime waves, crime surges in recent history because of that precise problem. Right. And I think it's true. It's It might seem like um, esoteric fiction to imagine us in a situation where we are on this stranded island. It's a lot easier and more topical to imagine perhaps a system where police simply don't show up if they're called, uh, where, you know, perhaps you just aren't charged for crimes. And so we're already, like you mentioned, seeing the results of that on a lesser scale. But I think going back to the idea that this is still a topical conversation, there are still people out there who would deny man's nature to indulge in those darker behaviors if he knows that there are no consequences. And and even the different, different uses you can have for the, the same things. You know, the, the most important character in the entire book, as far as I'm concerned, is the fire. The fire is what they're always talking about. The fire is at the heart of the conflict. The fire is at the heart of their salvation. And Ralph and Piggy want to use the fire. They're obsessed. You, the fire is all, Forget about hunting. Even forget about uh, lots of the other things you want to do. Keep the fire going. Fire is the the gift from Prometheus to man. Fire is one of the things that distinguishes man from from all of the other beasts. We can make fire. We can control fire. And the the bad boys want the the fire too, but they just want to have the fire to go char their pork and be able to go And to eventually destroy. And eventually destroy the entire island. The fire for Ralph and for Piggy represents hope. The only hope they've got that they can get off of this island. And the really bad boys, they've lost their hope. They don't have any hope. They are not trying to get off the island. They, they are living as less than human. They're living as animals, grunting and hunting and killing each other like they would any other wild animal. 
And I think that that still summarizes a, a great duality of man right now. You have those who politically, philosophically, within their personal lives, are wanting to preserve the fire and hold out for that salvation or that hope. And you have other people who simply do not care, who would rather wallow in their current situation. And that conflict is as real today as it is on, on that island. Thankfully, at least where you know, we are right now, it's not uh, bursting into flames among us. But I think um, we have yet to, in the 70 years that this book was written, find a way to solve that. In a way, the, the book, though it's chock full of wisdom, but it, it's also... It's just here are problems. Yes, not necessarily solutions, but here well, there's no problems. certainly no no solutions in it. But but though the book is very full of wisdom, it's also clearly a product of its time. Mm-hmm. And I guess here this book as the answer to the Coral Island is is important for us to think about. This is a book of a man who has given up hope for civilization. <laughs> I don't want to speak for the Nobel Prize winning uh, William Golding, but this is a man who looked at the Coral Island and he said. That's not how things really are. This idea that we in the West can go around and civilize the world and have a hope for a better future, that's not what I saw with the atom bomb. That's right. not what I saw with the Nazis. That's not what I saw with the communists in the Second World War. Uh, this is a, a really cynical, pessimistic take, and I'm not sure it's the correct one. It's, as we've been describing, it's, it is one side of the story, and there is, there is deep wisdom in that side of the story. We will kill Piggy. Leave us alone on an island. We are going to kill poor little Piggy. Is there a way for Western civilization to get our mojo back, though? Is, is there a way for us to, to be confident in our beliefs, have, be, have confident hope for the future? Is, can we wait for that ship to show up on the coastline once they see the smoke that we've burned our whole civilization down with? Well, I mean, it's it's funny because I'm someone who, like you mentioned, I'm more inclined to to agree with Golding. And I think when we look at the state of our, our civilization or individual countries right now, it is, I don't want to say it's, it's proof that he was right in the fact that we do have rising crime. We're dealing with this huge situation right now in Eastern Europe as well. That's, uh, you know, this is conventional warfare we were talking about. Way First more major similar. war in Europe in, since World War II. Exactly. Way more similar to something uh, that Golding himself had experienced than previous conflicts, which you could have just chalked up to, you know, individual radical I- ideas, though this is like nature of man coming out. And so, you know, I I think it would obviously be an oversimplification to say all men bad all the time. But I think the point that Golding is trying to make is that we cannot civilize ourselves out of our inherent nature. And so I I don't think it's necessarily a question of just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, we're always going to be a little bit bad anyway. So just anarchy now, party, party. But it's just the, the idea that we are above any of this savagery I think that is a mistake, and I think that's something that we do need to be reminded of because if you look at, I mean, not to call out the people in like California too much, I think there are people who are in charge and who are making policies right now who would think that there are these dark urges or dark uh, desires that would never manifest themselves in our society, and they are proven wrong right. all the time. <laughs> right, the idea. All you know, if you just give the criminals a few more hugs, then exactly. they'll start, right. Well, I, I suppose if there's any hope to be had— it is this. Uh, th- this might be Golding's insight on hope, too. It's going to get a lot, lot worse. And then when the smoke coming from the cinders of our entire culture 
finally explodes into the air. Maybe a ship passing by Maybe will then. be able to save us. It reminds me of the distinction between a conservative optimist and a conservative pessimist. Salina, a priest friend of mine, told me, the conservative pessimist says things cannot get any worse. And the conservative optimist says, oh, yes, they can. That's, that's, that's the hope that we have uh, to, to look out for here. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you? So you can find me on almost every social media platform at, at the Lauren Chen. And you can also find me on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, uh, just by searching Lauren Chen. Hopefully, if the algorithm gods are looking down upon me favorably, you will find me. That's wonderful. Not just a Lauren Chen. You go the. to at the one and only Lauren Chen. And this one and only book, Lord of the Flies by William Golding. If you haven't read it yet, read it now so that you do not kill Piggy. I'm Michael <laughs> Knowles. This is The Book Club. We'll see you next month. Thank you so much for watching this episode of The Book Club on PragerU. PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations from viewers like you to keep this content on the air. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today to help keep this content coming. Thank you very much.